The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, March 20th. In today's news, the novel coronavirus is killing men at much higher rates than women. Rural areas of our country are likely to have the highest death rates and the shortage of testing kits has amplified inequities in our healthcare system. But first, the big idea. Experts around the country have been churning out model after model, marshalling every tool from math, medicine, science, and history to try to predict the coming chaos unleashed by the coronavirus and to make preparations. At the heart of their algorithms is a scary but empowering truth. What happens next depends largely on us, our government and politicians and health institutions, and in particular, the 328 million inhabitants of this country, all making tiny decisions on a daily basis with outsized consequences for our collective future. In the worst case scenario, America is on a trajectory toward 1.1 million deaths. That model envisions the sick pouring into hospitals, overwhelming even makeshift beds and parking lot tents. Doctors would have to make agonizing decisions about who gets scarce resources. Shortages of frontline clinicians would worsen as they get infected, some dying alongside their patients. Trust in government, already tenuous, would erode further. That grim scenario is by no means a foregone conclusion. As demonstrated by countries such as South Korea, which has reduced its new cases a day from hundreds to dozens, with aggressive steps to bolster its health system. If Americans embrace drastic reductions and school closures, we could see a death toll closer to the thousands and breathe a national sigh of relief as we prepare for a grueling but surmountable road ahead. Doing that will require Americans to flatten the curve, slowing the spread of the contagion so it doesn't overwhelm a health system with finite resources. That phrase, flatten the curve, has become ubiquitous in our national conversation over the last week. But what experts have not always made clear is that by applying all that downward pressure on the curve, by canceling public gatherings, closing schools, quarantining the sick, and enforcing social distancing, what happens is you elongate the curve, stretching it out over a longer period of time. Success means a longer though less catastrophic, fight against the coronavirus. And it's unclear whether Americans, who built this country on ideals of independence and individual rights, would be willing to endure such harsh restrictions on their lives for months, let alone a year or a year and a half. Here's another thing that hasn't been spelled out clearly in our national conversation about flattening the curve. There will probably be more than one curve. If we're lucky, epidemiologists tell my colleagues on the health and science beat, William Wan, Joel Achenbach, Carolyn Johnson, and Ben Guarino, the coming months will probably look less like a mountain and more like a string of bumpy hills. But if authorities ease some measures in coming months, or if we start letting them slip ourselves, that hill could easily turn right back into the exponential curve that has cratered Italy's health system and that U.S. officials are desperately trying to avoid replicating. Climbing this first hill will in many ways be the most challenging, 
because it involves persuading people to change their individual behaviors for an abstract larger good. And also because no one knows how far we actually are from the peak. As America enters this utterly unfamiliar territory for almost anyone who's alive, some experts have turned to history for glimpses of what to expect in the months ahead. Initially leery of alarming the public, they're increasingly comparing this pandemic to the 1918 flu pandemic, the deadliest in modern history. It infected roughly a third of the world's population and killed at least 50 million people, including at least 675,000 people in the United States. Like the bumpy hills some foresee in coming months, the 1918 pandemic hit America in three waves. A mild one that spring, the deadliest wave that fall, but then a final wave that winter. With each wave came a cycle of denial, devastation, community response finally kicking into overdrive, followed by finger-pointing and blame among leaders and the public. Medical anthropologist Monica Scoach Spana spent months digging through archives to study how the 1918 flu played out in Baltimore. Like the coronavirus is likely to do, that flu overwhelmed hospitals. Unable to get help, Desperate families waited outside to beg and try to bribe doctors for treatment. In a three-week period, 2,000 died in Baltimore alone. Mortuaries ran out of caskets. When the bodies finally reached cemeteries, the gravediggers were so ill there was no one to bury the dead. Economic pressure on business owners and workers caused the public to resist adopting new restrictions. The crisis brought out the best in Baltimoreans with Sewing circles churning out gauze masks and hospital bedding and neighbors donating food and services. It also brought out the worst. Xenophobic conspiracy theories said that nurses of German extraction were deliberately infecting people. African-American patients were kept out of most hospitals under Jim Crow era segregation. One of the other great things that history teaches us is the profound power of the individual. Stanford virologist Carla Kierkegaard said she has tried to stave off dread from the projected U.S. death tolls with a case study that she teaches in her classes. Amid a cholera outbreak in mid-19th century London, as panicked residents fled one hard-hit neighborhood, a doctor named John Snow calmly entered the breach. He deduced that the source of hundreds of deaths was a single contaminated water pump, and he persuaded authorities to remove the pump's handle. That strategy ended the outbreak. Now, controlling the COVID-19 pandemic is going to take a lot more than removing a single water pump. But this is a reminder of how powerful the simple act of one person can be. Let's each strive to be that person as much as we can. And that's the big idea here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Today, instead of focusing on the federal response, as I did yesterday, I'm going to share some of the latest insights we're learning about the virus itself and the efforts to test for it. Number one, with over 200,000 confirmed coronavirus cases worldwide and now thousands of deaths, a striking pattern is appearing in the hardest hit countries. Vastly more men are dying than women. Nowhere is this trend more pronounced than in Italy. 
Men make up nearly 60% of people with confirmed cases and more than 70% of those who have died. In China, a study of 99 patients at a hospital in Wuhan where the virus originated found that men made up two-thirds of patients. More recent figures from China's Center for Disease Control, based on tens of thousands of cases, showed an even stronger gender breakdown. 64% of people with the virus were male. This gendered death gap was also seen in the smaller outbreaks of SARS and MERS. Scientists say these statistics could be a product of behavior, biology, or both. For one thing, demographic figures suggest that many men have more health risks to begin with. Women tend to live longer than men. Men also drink and smoke a lot more, especially in China. But there are also underlying biological differences between men and women that may make COVID-19 worse in men. Years of research have found that women generally have stronger immune systems than men and are better able to fend off infections. The X chromosome contains a large number of immune-related genes, and because women have two X chromosomes, they gain a structural advantage in fighting diseases. Studies have also found that estrogen was protective in female mice infected with the virus that caused the 2003 SARS outbreak. Number two, biostatistician and infectious disease specialist Nicholas Reich from the University of Massachusetts is participating in the White House Coronavirus Task Force efforts to model the virus. He says that the death rates from flu for people over 50 could be a really good indicator of vulnerability for the coronavirus. He explains that flu death rates are probably not a perfect measure, but they're a really good place to start. And here's what they tell us. The push for social distancing and isolation makes dense crowds and public transportation in big cities seem like the deadliest environment, right? Everyone's afraid of the subway in New York. But the pattern of flu deaths over the past five years shows that big metro areas are not hotspots for high flu death rates. Most of the deaths numerically are in the big population centers because that's where most of the people are. But the risk for any individual person goes up dramatically where homes are sparse. Very rural areas of our country have a 60% higher death rate from flu than the big metro areas, according to an analysis we did of CDC death records. Collectively, the 68 most rural counties in Kansas, for instance, have nearly 14 deaths per 100,000 people age 50 or older, well over double the rate for the county around Topeka, the state capital. And the rate around New York City, 3.4 deaths per 100,000, is around half of that. The higher rates in remote areas may be due to difficulty getting health care. Rural residents have greater travel distances and more limited resources. Flu mortality is very notable for low rates in the warmest states. For example, California and the Belt of states from Arizona to Florida have much lower flu death rates than places in the Northeast or even the Northwest. But as Reich explained, the flu is not a perfect predictor for COVID-19. And we don't know yet, either way, if warm weather will provide protection against this new coronavirus the way it does with the standard flu. Number three, actors, politicians, and athletes have had quick and easy access to coronavirus tests, while other Americans, including frontline healthcare workers and those with obvious signs of infection, have been out of luck. The nationwide shortage of kits has amplified inequities in a system in which some can merely call up their concierge physician on speed dial while others cry for attention in crowded emergency rooms. 
asked if the rich and powerful should have easier access to coronavirus testing than the general public, President Trump replied, quote, no, I wouldn't say so, but perhaps that's been the story of life. The story of life. There's so many examples. On the same day that Utah jazz player Rudy Gobert fell ill in Oklahoma and was tested for the coronavirus earlier this month, which led to the cancellation of the NBA season, a female paramedic lay in a Tulsa hospital bed, unable to obtain a test. Her doctors couldn't receive approval to get her tested until March 12th, and then they had to wait two more days for the result. At least two individuals treating the patient are now in quarantine out of concern that they may not have worn proper protective gear before she was diagnosed. Joshua Sharfstein, a public health expert at Johns Hopkins and a former FDA official during the Obama administration, said that widespread testing for the general public is at least a couple weeks away. Generally, he said that tests should be administered based on severity of symptoms. But the government's lack of an organized response to testing has made that difficult, if not impossible, to implement nationally. That has set up institutions like the NBA for criticism. After it was disclosed that the Brooklyn Nets arranged coronavirus testing for all their players at the recommendation of the team's doctors because multiple players and staff were exhibiting symptoms, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio blasted the team on Twitter. Tests should not be for the wealthy, he tweeted, but for the sick. The Nets defended their decision as the right thing to do for their players and their families. Meanwhile, another high-profile team has opted against testing its players given local shortages. Golden State Warriors general manager Bob Myers told reporters that because the tests are in such short supply, especially in California, they're not going to waste them on players who aren't showing symptoms. Myers explained, quote, We're not better than anybody. We're not worse. We're just a basketball team. The able-bodied among us can all model that humility. And that's the Daily 202 for Friday, March 20th. Thanks for listening. For the weekend ahead, you can stay informed on the latest live coverage of the coronavirus and stories with critical health information for free every day on our homepage and at WashingtonPost.com slash coronavirus. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you on Monday. <laughs>